Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. This week we will be digesting the battle for number 10. Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn face off both audience, actual people, and Jeremy Paxman. We'll be wrangling over whether or not the polls are right. And whether or not Stephen is wrong. Uh, Or indeed I am wrong. And we'll also be chatting a little bit about the young people. What do they want? Can they be stopped? Stephen, you stayed up to watch uh, the Corbyn May face off, except it wasn't. It was them facing off with More actual humans and uh, animatronic Jeremy Paxman. Um, who do you think won? Um, Jeremy Corbyn. I, I, I don't, to be honest, Stephen, think it was arguable. Um, the, the the distance. Well, well, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna finesse that slightly. My expectation going into it was that Jeremy would win it handily. Uh, he's very good at that kind of Q&A question time style format. I expect him to win the uh, the, the Friday uh, question time style format, which some of our listeners will have, will have watched, and for some of you it will still be in the future as it is for us. Um, because obviously I have seen him at more hustings than I care to think about. Um, yeah, I thought there was a really interesting bit it. when the guy brought up the IRA stuff. Oh, no, sorry, it wasn't the IRA stuff, but although I thought he dealt with that very well. It was when the um, the man said, I'm a business owner and I really don't want... I'm worried about you banning zero-hours contracts, imposing minimum wage, and uh, I don't think I'll be able to pay the VAT on private school fees, which someone sent a great tweet about, which was like, how can I, a literal pharaoh with hundreds of slaves, possibly vote Labour now? It was like, well, I just think, you know, Labour could change all of its policies in order to appeal to people like you or you could accept that your priorities are conservative priorities but nonetheless Jeremy Corbyn gave a very good answer to that question which ended in a kind of which is a nice way to end right when it's properly rousing kind of preacher like I want a society that does this and this and this and this and it reminded you of the fact that he has bellowed into thousands of crowds his vision for a good society yeah I think the most important um change though is that Jeremy's one big flaw in that format is he gets angry and he bares his teeth and it really looks particularly bad on, on camera. And the leader's office had been aware of this and they had prepared for it. And actually, Jeremy Paxman, who mostly had a night to forget, I think did come in with a good plan A, which is if you want to get good... T- if your main priority is good television rather than scrutiny, parking for a moment, and I imagine we will discuss elsewhere in this podcast the the balance between good TV and good scrutiny. But... um. 
if, if, if what you want is good telly, it makes sense to kind of try and irritate Jeremy Corbyn. We, we sort of know that's his flaw in interviews. However, he... He does he, do that. Yeah. However, he clearly prepared not to be irritated. It didn't work, and it just meant that you had, like, the kind of... It was he was like super a, jovial about the answer about the Queen, when he was just like, I love the Queen. She and I, we went skateboarding together. We had great times. Yeah. I, I thought May would be um, worse than she was. She had flashes of the things I I kind of... You know, the, the reason you kind of feared for, for May going into the tie is um, that, that awful death stare she gives people who ask her bad questions, which you can get away with doing to journalists because we are, you know, rightly despised. Um, but you can't, you can't do to members of the public. She did it to Quentin Letts. There's a great clip of Quentin Letts of the Daily Mail. Asked her a question, which I think comes across really badly, comes across as give us a smile, love, right? Which is sort of like, you know, why aren't we all a bit of a glum bucket? Why haven't we seen you cheering up? But there's a moment where she just looks like... You want you kind of want a kind of crackle of thunder in the background, like a da 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 da. Yeah. And yeah, like you say, if you do that to Joyce forty three, who's asked you about the you know pupil premium, then it's then it's bad. That is bad times. But also, I thought that actually there was a really good, interesting lesson in how a, a rhythm of a political interview that Paxman did in that question to her, which was just he built up a case. Right, it was quite prosecutorial. He went through U turn after U turn. But he was in, so in love with interrupting both of them that. She paused while struggling and he interrupted, giving her a moment to catch her breath. Well, that's something that Emma Barnett on Women's Hour with Jeremy Corbyn did much better, which was just to like to let the silence hang as he flailed wildly trying to find the figures on his iPad, which was actually much more damning than it would have been to kind of just go and keep interrupting. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I want to stick on battle for number 10 uh, because then we can have a fight about the, uh, the uh, Emma Barnett interview. Uh, yeah, so I, I was... Uh, but she did do a better job of boring the audience into submission with these very long answers that by the end she could have said, and also I will kill the firstborn. And you go, yeah, seems reasonable. The thing which... Would- but Jez Buchanan did that. As well. Yeah, but he just conveyed more warmth. He did convey more passion and more, yeah. I thought actually, do you know, I listened to him and I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I, in a way I was sort of thinking, I'm quite glad that somebody's kind of saying these things and just not backing down when people come back at him. That it, that sort of swelled a little bit of my left-wing heart. It's, it's interesting because obviously you, you can't ever tell how much campaigns matter, how much good campaigns, you know, if you have two good campaigns against each other, how much they cancel each other out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we are going to have a very good idea at the end of this election, just how much the kind of fundamentals going into a campaign matter and how much the decisions you make in the short campaign matter. Because Labour and Corbyn have done everything right and the Conservatives have done everything wrong. So if the result well, looks... apart from having a, you know, a leader that is still, even though her popularity has dropped by 40 points, it's dropped to a plus number rather well, that's than a not minus. A cam- that's not a campaign effect. Like well, I think, yeah, con- okay, going, going like, into the campaign with it, yeah, I, I think the by thing, being the Conservatives is an advantage. The, yeah, the thing, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the things you can't control, you know, how popular, well, obviously, you know, in terms of the things which are set in stone at the start of the election, how popular are your respective leaders, what's the state of the economy, is the press on side, you know, it, all of those various factors, right? But, and the kind of machinery, the, the kind of... Um, the back room of the Conservative campaign is still quite good, which in an odd way makes the bit where any any le- any politician has to make a decision and then they make the bad one even more noticeable because it is, sorry, sports metaphor, like watching a team do a great passing move, move to a donkey who then kind of just brays at the ball for a bit instead of putting it in the back of the net. 
good sports metaphoring. Yeah, I thought um, Rachel Sylvester had a good point in her column this week, which was talking about how May used sort of off the back of the G7 summit to mischaracterise Jeremy Corbyn's argument on terrorism. And she compared that to George Osborne using the kind of threat of the emergency budget and the full weight of being in government to try and bludgeon the Leave campaign. And in both cases, they came across as someone being quite manipulative in an unpleasant way. Now, the trouble is, you can say someone coming off as unpleasant and manipulative is a price you have to pay sometimes for manipulating people in a way that works for you. But that's, I, I have, I think that the fascinating thing is the way that the May campaign is now being read in the sense of, because everyone still expects her to win, what comes afterwards? And the fact that she will emerge from it a weakened prime minister with her own party instead of having this had this kind of coronation and everyone feeling grateful to her. She's already a bit damaged, which is fascinating because the same thing happened to you know David Cameron. It was We were all getting all these sort of flowing op-eds about how, because he delivered a majority when he was only expected to get hung parliament now, you know, the party was you know, be, reunited behind him. And then, you know, a year later he was gone. Yeah, but it is worth noting with David Cameron that despite two years that had a number of unforced errors by his Chancellor, a referendum on a subject where most of his parliamentary party were privately opposed, he still got a majority of Conservative MPs to row behind him. Albeit a lot of them kind of went, yeah, I back it, and then said nothing else. But he, he did command quite a lot of residual affection. And when you consider that they once again... And yeah, so I think a couple of things. One, we kind of forget how much the goodwill Cameron had did hold things together for for a year, which would otherwise have been quite a traumatic one in the life of the Conservative Party. You know, a public fight over an issue which has basically split them since the 70s. And if you widen Europe to be about trade, you know, kind of in some ways it is the ancient Conservative fissure running right back to their point of origin under Peel, right? So... The fact that the the party didn't ever look like it was going to tear asunder does show how much that goodwill matters. I am yet to speak to a um, a Conservative MP who obviously there are no MPs because there's no part, but you, you take, take my point. Who um, who has said to me in you know kind of sincerely that they don't now think that whatever result they get will be more about their their opponents than them. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I also think that there is a, a, a feeling of misery generally about the manifesto and about the feeling that there were no... The, the Labour Party manifesto was all cookies and sprinkles and theirs was all porridge and carrots. And actually the porridge and carrots are being taken away from you. And actually they really wished that there had been a couple of, you know, a couple of big nice giveaways that they could have changed the subject to. But actually, one of the big problems with the social care policy was there was nothing to pivot to, except, as we've seen now this week, Brexit. Which... I mean, the, see, the thing is, they're actually... So Chris Dillow, um, who's a kind of a blogger and economist who I, I, I greatly admire, has done a really great blog about like, who is Mayism for. And this thing's just like, who are the... You know, kind of, if you take uh, Margaret Thatcher... She had a, a, a diagnosis of where the economy is that obviously lots of people disagree with, but she had this idea that, you know, you got growth by deregulating, weakening the trade unions, and she had a series of people who became winners, people who became asset-rich, people who were able to retire to the Costa del Sol, etc., etc. Um, George Osborne, equally, he and Cameron had winners. They had dual earner childless couples and... Me, he had me. Bo- and boomers, yeah. And, and you. And, yeah, right. George Osborne's right. winners, cruel as it may seem. But... And, and, you know, taken together, okay, not every, you know, some elderly boomers went, you know what, I don't 
I don't need this, somebody will earn a child, as couples did. But taken together, that was enough in the right seats, in the right places to get their, their solid 36, uh, 37% of the vote. The weird thing about Mayism is, one, I mean, who are the people who will be better off under it? I mean, they still have the Bungford dual earner couples with the, the threshold raise, and they've got um, the 40p raise, although obviously Labour is matching both of those. But who are the people who are better off? Is it is it private tutors who will teach middle-class kids how to game the 11 plus? Is it yes, people they will who, do quite well. Is it people who will get the elderly people to do... The manufacturers of Cocoa Pops will probably do pretty well with those 7p really? school breakfasts. But, and the thing is, right, is, you know, like, these are, you know, no shade to any of these people, but they are not big enough groups to form an electoral majority, right? There is no... And also, in terms of, like, the kind of long, flowery passages... Um, which, I mean, it really did feel like a rubbish column by someone desperately trying to tell you how intelligent they were, the Conservative Manifesto. Um, but um, <laughs> but the... Um, but the Casual subtweet of 90% of your colleagues. Um, but uh, the, the, the other sort of problem with it, right, is what is the... Imagine that Osborne's economic policy worked, right? You, there is a vision of a country which, where the North has become, where Manchester has become a, a great sort of financial and trading and tech centre like London, where we have low debt, low tax, blah, 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 all of that, right? As it happens, I think there's a massive hole in that marked his inability to actually, you can't achieve in a democratic system the um, deficit reduction plans he, he, he claimed Osborne. to want to. Yeah. How, however, there was actually a plan at the end of it. Whereas, I think like, my, what is, but what the main plan, plan, whatever the Northern Industrial Strategy turns out to be, is is not one that will bear fruit for for years and years and years and years. I think um, actually, I quite enjoyed Jan Ganesh's column this week, which said that you know the trouble is that there are massive cash transfers from London and the southeast to the rest of the country. You might take a gamble that actually people are willing to pay a price for lower immigration, but all the research suggests you know they did that research before the referendum last year, which said how much would you be willing to pay in order to cut immigration? And the vast majority of people it was like under twenty five quid. For a lot of people, it was literally zero. Yeah, I think immigration is a bit like. Um the kind of Labour Party thing of but the policies and the manifesto are popular. It's just like, yeah, but... And it might be different this time, but historically what has tended to happen is people go, I love these Labour policies. Yeah, I'm into them. I'm definitely going to vote for them. And then you go like, are you willing to pay for them? And they go, oh, no, are you mad? And I think immigration is sort of like that for the right. But that's what really, really worries me about this election. So when I was out in Halifax, I asked um, Holly Lynch, who's a Labour candidate there, saying, you know, does immigration come up much in the door? Because in 2015, it absolutely did. You talked to any candidate and they said, yeah, Pete, that's, people are really, you know, it's number one issue along with the economy. And he said, no, well, no, it's, you know, it's people sort of think that Brexit has, has settled that. And I think that is a problem. People have just sort of assumed, actually, and there hasn't been that much discussion about immigration because it's assumed that it will go down as a result of Brexit. If it doesn't, I think that's toxic because it's another broken promise. And it's a bit... And remember how, you know, tuition fees has poisoned the Lib Dems with an entire cohort. It's a, a broken promise to a big, big electoral cohort. And it is also the fertile ground for, which I can kind of feel already happening, the revival of UKIP as a party which is much closer to the BNP. I think where you're finding UKIP support now is closer to the support of a proper hard, hard right party. And that's, you know, with Paul Nuttall saying that he'd be, not only does he want people hanged, he'd be happy to hang them himself, like, from a tree in his garden. You know, you can feel where that party is 
is going. Yeah, I think the interesting, I, th- I think there are a lot, so many interesting things about UKIP's, whether it's death or kind of weird retreat into a kind of cocoon to emerge as a kind of larger BNP butterfly. The first is, I do think the different treatment of Paul Nuttall and Nigel Farage does reveal something interesting and distinctive about the British class system, right? Huh, oh, that's interesting. Because I, yeah, I've always seen that through the prism of the Tory right found Nigel Farage very useful as a kind of bullock against backsliding from Cameron, and it was in their interest to boost him. But you think the fact that he's Scouse versus a kind of larky public schoolboy... Yeah, I mean, he's driving that. Farage um, was in many ways a more. Um, actually, an interesting question is Farage a better politician or does he just have natural. Because obviously, Theresa May, I don't think, is as good a politician as David Cameron, but her biography, the way she sounds, you know, the thing I'm really struck by before the social care thing, you'd go around the country and people would say, oh, she seems like she's like me. Is that being a good politician? Is that just like the, the gift of, of genetics and voice? But. Whichever, Farage had this thing where he he both was able to come across as I'm like you, I didn't go to university, particularly like, you know, men of a certain age who've, who've for one reason or another feel fairly disappointed in their lives. You know, their, their high street clothes, their, you know, their job was like, you know, whatever. Um, he, he, he was able to speak directly to them while also being in the kind of milieu of the kind of... Um, BBC booker, you know, the kind of, like, posh people asking questions. He'd know questions. what fork to use. He wouldn't disgrace himself at Ascot. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, and it's... So, kind of, the burka ban is, is, is a vintage Farage. I'm going to say something awful and get people to talk about it, and this will mean people will write up UKIP. But the problem with... For, for Paul Nuttall is he's... You know, he's obviously from... You know, from, from Merseyside. He, you know, he's he's got you know no hair. He he just looks more uh, more thuggish, right? And Farage's great achievement was he got the vote share that the BNP could get if it could appeal to people who um who used coasters. Um, but you know, but there's something innately non-aspirational and kind of um, you know, I also think there's a thing about-, about voting for the BNP, which you see even you know kind of even kind of in sort of like bits of East London where people vote for the BNP, right? There are people who, you know, you'd knock on the door and you'd think exactly the same background, talk to, hear their accent exactly the same background. But there's a sense in lots of communities that, like, if you vote for the BNP, you're admitting you've had a rubbish life. And Farage was able to to bust UKIP out of that cage. Nuttall is kind of pulling them back into it. Yeah, I also think, I was thinking about this this morning with relations to, like, how much people love... Uh, Emmanuel Macron kind of giving the smackdown to Donald Trump and to Vladimir Putin, right? There is a sense that what people want in politicians is like, we want our bully. We want somebody who will be slightly like cruel and sort of smack people down publicly on behalf of the values that we hold dear, right? So liberals love Macron doing the like tight, grippy handshake or the kind of, you know, I ban Sputnik News because it's an organ of influence stuff. Stuff that is kind of slightly slightly dickish i guess you know slight has a slight edge to it because because he's he's you know he's he's our he's our dick basically and that's you can then appreciate why maybe people like that so much in farage who definitely was like he's our dick right he's the guy who comes into this very cozy club and just says well, things that you know, no one to, to the meps after brexit you're not laughing anymore and the thing i'm yeah the kind of i mean that you know 
There are so many fascinating undercurrents that we don't really talk about enough in the vote. But the thing I'm continually fascinated by is this really strong need among a section of people who voted Leave to believe no one who voted Remain saw it coming. Oh, I love that. I love that. When they, they, they just, we've upset a incredibly complacent political class. And I think, I think it's about sort of like a lone voice in the wilderness thing. I think if you've devoted that many years of your political career to this and been dismissed as a crank, then you've got to kind of roll around in it. I mean, don't tell me you're not preparing a little list of people who've told you that you were kind of completely wrong about things when the election is over so that you can go back to them and just have a little tiny gloat. I kind of feel if I'm right about the election, my plans will be largely to cry. TBH, but... Yeah, but uh, a little bit of schadenfreude will really make the medicine go down. Um, but, uh, but, you know... No, I think to be honest, I am just. The, but the people are madly invested in that, right? People are completely. People tell me all the time, no one saw Trump coming, and you're like, I'm digging out the tweet where I said that it's going to happen. And they're just really into this idea that all predictions are wrong, no one's seen anything coming. Yeah, but, but I, that's the power of narrative, isn't it? It's the way that they don't wrap in the far right candidate being um, defeated in Austria, say, or you know, Macron's victory is not is not over interpreted to mean anything difficult. I, I just. Yeah, and I think, um, but yeah, I think I think the interesting thing is I think if you can survive financially, which is obviously the the big uh, problem for them, uh, they will revive. Uh, I reckon they they will probably need to get another leader who can once again, you know, do that kind of class finessing that Nuttall just can't do. Right, I, I agree People, with you. The whole thing of having somebody who's privately educated from the south but didn't go to university is pretty much the sweet spot because you're giving both people you know both non-graduates they're a bit of biography for them and you're giving the respectability that other people want there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Somebody has offered to do a jingle for me, which I haven't got back to yet because um, I've been away. But I'm really excited, Stephen. This time next week, we could have a jingle. Oh, let the joy be unconfined. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the question is, why are people getting excited about all of this? Again, their words, not mine. Have we forgotten that Twitter North is, is not a constituency? You mean Labour coming to within maybe five to three points of the Tories in the polls? Yeah, and just the general, like, oh, we're doing well in the debates. Jeremy's you know, the, quite lovely when people get to know him. Yeah, kind the of. The policies are very popular. Isn't this just what happened with Ed Miliband in the run-up to the 2015 election? It is, Stephen. That's exactly what it is. And I um, I would like to be the yeah the representative for Pissing on Your Chips South and uh, tell you that I don't think that... I think when you probe into the figures, I think that some of them that have got Labour much closer are assuming levels of turnout among young people, which I think are unlikely to happen. Um, I think when you look at the other figures, like who's the best leader, who's most trusted on the economy, those are pretty much, pretty bleak, uh, and they were a better indicator in 2015. 
And also, I think probably even if Labour do a better vote share than Ed Miliband last time, which is entirely possible, I think that vote is probably not in great places. I think if you look at the kind of seats you expect them to win or lose, I think the picture is not great. So I partially agree with some of that. Um, <laughs> Talk about damning with faint praise, OK. Right, in the, so it feels fairly clear to me that the, um, the poll surge... Is 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 actually you? Could, there are signs of it happening in real life, right? Then you can tell that Labour is actually successfully swallowing the Greens and the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, yeah, I can see it on my own commute into work. You know, kind of. Yes, partly that's a private rented, rented sector and the kind of usual churn. But on the same journey two years ago, Green Green and Lib Dem posters uh-huh. are now Votes Labour in posters. South for Labour are not what but Labour yeah, so needs right is, now. So, but this is this is that is the kind of bit I would agree with, right? It does seem to me that what may be happening is a situation where Labour increases its vote in places it already holds. It makes very strong showings in seats that the Liberal Democrats uh, would hope to have gained from the Conservatives, but obviously they seem to be disintegrating. Um, and this, yeah, however, so that, that, but yeah, so the kind of, it feels to me the kind of question of are the polls giving us a true picture of what's happening feels to me they certainly are, right? My, my assumption is always Labour will underperform its polls by about three or four points. But in terms of the phenomena, that feels about right to me. That, 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 that the fits one thing I will I'm... concede to you is that I do think there is a sort of uh, hardening up of the vote. I think lots of Labour people who were maybe flirting with going to the Lib Dems because of Brexit have kind of accepted that this is a Labour versus Tory election. And actually, they're making that protest vote about Brexit is kind of pointless. I think that's definitely happened. And I also think that w- Jeremy Corbyn's weaknesses were pretty well known before we went into this campaign. To some extent, people had already swallowed them. Uh, before they came in, whereas Theresa May's weaknesses, although pretty well known in Westminster, were not widely shared in the country. Yeah, and I think because so the the question in terms of the uh, the kind of because yeah, basically the the Labour's increase in the polls is is kind of coming from three places. There's people who who who've usually vote Labour who don't like Jeremy Corbyn who are returning to the fold. There are people who actually don't like Labour but are more into Jeremy Corbyn who are voting for the Labour Party, and then there are. Uh, a kind of actually, this is not really a separate third group, uh, but they're, they're kind of they they're both they're people in the first group, but they're responding to a different stimuli, right? They're people who didn't come into this election expecting to vote for the Labour Party. They thought, oh, Theresa May seems like a different type of conservative. Oh, I think I'll vote for the Lib Dems. But for a lot of people, it is an incredible emotional breach to not vote for the Labour Party. And because Theresa May has done so many things to make herself more unattractive... I think because, fox hunting was a big misstep yeah, in that Because the Liberal Democrats have just had a bit of a mare from soup to nuts. That vote is kind of going, oh, actually, I'm not going to do this emotionally painful thing. I'm just going to vote for the Labour Party. Now, the difficulty is, with a week out, can that coalition hold together, Right. Now, obviously, you'd expect the people who are feeling this emotional pullback to Labour to stay the course, but some of them might stay home. You would expect uh, the people who like Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, to vote for the Labour Party. The The risk, I think, is if if, if, if Labour can't turn people around on Jeremy on, on that kind of, yeah, I thought the people who thought they were voting in an election in which the question was, do I want there to be a Labour Party after this election? who may get spooked if they feel that they are voting in an election in which the question is, 
Do I want a Labour government? Do I want a Labour government, right? Yeah, I just thought the really interesting thing from the battle for number 10 was that the guy who asked Theresa May a question about social care and was quite emotional about it, you know, just saying, I want a house to pass on to my children, which, you know, we all know for all that I think inheritance tax is a very good and fair tax. It's a really unpopular tax, right? That is a motivating factor. He said afterwards, though, that he was still going to vote Conservatives. And I think there is a real cohort. I mean, not only when you look at the polling among that age group, are they like 50 points ahead of the Tories are over Labour? But also that I think there is a feeling among them that actually no politician would dare screw us over. Um, so actually, whatever they say, we all know that no one's really going to do something terrible to pensioners because there's so many of us and we vote. They've internalised that message. Well, yeah, and actually, as her U-turn kind of kind of demonstrates, right, it's a bit like when people sneer about, oh, why was Cornwall so silly as to vote against um the EU funding. So actually, Cornwall sends, you know, a bumper crop of Conservative MPs to Westminster. They will be fine. Um, you know, actually, they're, they're people's eye, voters' idea of their self-interest is more sophisticated, I think, than a lot of people give it credit for. So, yeah, However, that was my feeling, was that when you look at that, you think, I don't think, I think the social care was, was bad for them, and clearly the fact that the speediness of their U-turn clearly shows that it hurt them. But I also don't know if necessarily it's enough for people to to push people into the arms of Jeremy Corbyn, who's also offering some pretty salty tax and spend plans. The other sort of part of the coalition that I would usually be more nervous about are young people who don't usually vote. In some of the polls, like Servation suggests 84% of, of young people voting. That feels Is it unlikely. Is like 50% at the last election, 51%, something like that? Um, yeah, I think... No, I, I, I had looked. I at looked at your exciting historical poll chart where it kind of went down from sort of seventy percent and then it bottomed out during, in two thousand and five so and then the, it ticked up a bit. The really fascinating trend is that second term Labour governments it turns out are really bad for youth turnout. It drops in nineteen sixty six, which is weirder because nineteen sixty six Labour was looking to increase its majority from four to 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 to, to a bigger one. It got a majority of ninety odd. I want to say. Um, in 2001, you kind of go partly a foregone conclusion, maybe. But it's fascinating because it does together suggest a wider story of kind of disillusionment of Labour in, in office. I was thinking that's kind of complacency. A, I was thinking about this in the last election, that to people of my generation, you know, I was 14 in 1997, Labour was the establishment. You sort of thought whatever, you know, happened, that, but like you kick Labour, yeah, you give Labour a bit of a kicking, but Labour is still in charge, right? I think you, it took until 2010 for people to really go, oh, right, okay, so actually the Conservatives are the natural party of government. Yeah, and, and so there are a couple of reasons why I think the, the youth turnout may, I mean, yeah, the Servation one, which shows more young people than are registered to vote, saying they will definitely vote, that obviously won't happen. But I think there is a, there are many reasons to believe youth turnout will be higher this time than last time. One, again, the historical trend is basically Labour governments reduce youth turnout, Conservative governments increase it, which, yeah, does feel like a fairly obvious... Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't have to be Two, a there is something genuinely different for them to vote for, yeah, right? Something two, that is something... genuinely idealistic and is offering a real break. Three, we know that um, after a referendum which has had higher the turnout than before, turnout in the election afterwards has been higher. We saw that in the snap election in Northern Ireland after Brexit. We saw that in, in, in Scotland, uh, both in, the, in, in Holyrood and in the uh, Westminster election in 2015 after the 2014 referendum. So there are many reasons to be less panicked, I think, by that block of young voters. OK, but I'm, because we haven't got much time, I am going to wrap up by saying one thing, which is even if Labour are only, quote-unquote, only five points behind the Conservatives, that's still not what you'd hope for after seven years of a Conservative-led or Conservative government. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's still... A, 
You know, it's still a bad result, particularly against, uh, let's face it, shambolic Conservative Party with... A hugely an, self-sabotaging manifesto. Yeah, right. But, and yeah, I, w- I do, yeah, still expect them to underperform, but there are two important caveats there. One, if that were to hold, it would be the difference between a bad and disappointing defeat and between Apocalypse. what the polls suggested, which would have been a defeat which would have meant that Labour had lost the 2022 election before a vote had been cast. Yeah. And secondly, I think it what it does show, and I, I, I always resile from learning from, from America because I just think it's not as useful a guide as, as, as Europe in terms of our political culture and, and whatnot. But I do think the one important lesson from the United States is that if, if your diagnosis of someone's campaign is they have done enough to lose it, if you're, they probably still can, even if the other person is, 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 is not. You think Theresa May could lose? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. It feels to me, yeah, they may have got the wheels back on the wagon, right? The no deal line is obviously a, you know, a crock of a word I can't say without sabotaging our um, universal rating. But, um, but yeah, if, if they can keep on that, fine. But I, I, I just think it is no longer a safe bet to say that if she does erupt on Friday, glare at some boat of having the temerity to ask her a question and goes massively viral, then they can't lose. I, yeah, I, I really, I just can't see it. But then maybe, you know, once again, the sage of Bush will emerge next week as, as the only person. She, she might not, they might, have, they might have got their mistakes out of their system. But I just think, I think that, that... Given that this is a Linton Crosby campaign, I just think that there will be nothing of any interest said for next week apart from Brexit. Did you hear about Brexit? Who do you want to negotiate in Brexit? Brexit, though. Brexit. Yay, Brexit. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. We're produced by India Bork and mixed by James Shields. You've missed out on the chance to be among the first 10,000 subscribers to my excellent morning email. However, there is still time to be in the top 15,000, but you will have to hurry. Sign up now. It's free. Uh, just search New Statesman Morning Call. 